See, glory is what we give weight or substance to. And as we behold God's greatness, we can, like the reformers, say sole dea gloria. To God alone be the glory. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, today we uh, conclude our incredible mini-series through Romans 9 through 11, which we've titled God's Sovereign Purpose. And I was actually delighted to meet a young woman last week who introduced herself to me as a first-time guest. And uh, when I meet people who are brand new to our fellowship, I always ask them, well, how'd you find out about our church? And um, she said, Google. So the follow-up question to that answer is always important. Uh, it is, if you've searched us online, the question, of course, is, well, what did you search for? What did you look up and type in? And she responded that she searched for expository preaching. And I do have to say a little heavenly tear welled up in my eye when she said that. What is expository preaching? John Stott says, and we don't have the quote, but he says, to expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is already there and expose it to view. The expositor opens what appears to be closed. He makes plain what is obscure. He unravels what is knotted. He unfolds what is tightly packed. That's what we as a church do. That's what we believe in. That's what we affirm. We affirm expository preaching and teaching. We believe God's word. We, as we just did, we sing God's word. We build our lives upon God's word. We read God's word together. And as we study it, the purpose of preaching and teaching is to just simply bring out what is in God's word and to expose it to view. And that's what we're going to do today. We are going to do what uh, Steve Lawson did when he taught through, or whenever he really teaches through Romans chapter 11. We are about to stand on a mountaintop together and look at a grand view of the mercies and majesty of God, because that's what Paul does at the end of Romans 11. As he goes into Romans chapter 12, he says, in view of God's mercies. And so what I want us to do this morning is to realize that we're standing on top of a grand mountain. Godet says this, like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent, the apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illumine them, and there spreads all around an immense horizon which his eye commands. Everything in the book of Romans, everything so far has been moving us uphill, slowly ascending upward until we reach the vast mountain peak of the text before us this morning. And so what I want us to do, though you're in Romans chapter 11, is I'd like you to turn with me all the way back to Romans chapter 1. And yes, we have the time to do it this morning. So buckle up. What I want us to do is climb the theological landscape of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is given to us to feast on, to enjoy, right from the beginning and all throughout the book of Romans. Look at Romans 1.1 with me. You need your Bibles today. You need uh, either your Bible in front of you, or if you have uh, the ESV app, you can look this up. But look at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. 
Paul's opening words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what the entire book of Romans is about. It's about the gospel of God, the good news, the transforming news that brings life, hope, and power. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 that he promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So as we've seen, the gospel has been promised in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in Christ. And Paul says in verse 3 that this gospel concerns his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, not just the Lord, but our Lord. We learn here that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of blessing the nation of Israel to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus was God incarnate, truly God, truly man. He died, was buried, but he rose again. He's Christ our Lord. This is glorious good news. Amen? Well, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, through whom, through Christ, we, that's you and I, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Notice that in Christ, there's both an association with Christ as well as an assignment for Christ. So the church is called to belong to him, and in Christ, we Paul says, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, not just for the Jew. No, it's God's gospel that bears fruit among all peoples. Now, skip down to verse 16 and look at what Paul says about the gospel. Chapter 116 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the rest of the book of Romans is a sweeping, cascading view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to begin, we don't start halfway up the mountain. In fact, we don't start on level ground. To find our way up the mountain, we actually begin in the deep and dark foreboding valley of condemnation. And see, that's where many people go wrong. They believe, well, I'm just on neutral ground with God. When I was born, I'm on neutral ground, and God looks at me, and I'm, I'm neither sinner nor saint. I'm just in a neutral place. But no, friends, the good news can only be good news because of very bad news. So we don't start on level ground. In Romans 1.18, we begin with condemnation. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So even though God has revealed himself through creation, he's also revealed his wrath upon the ungodly and the unrighteous. Whether Gentile or Jew, men and women are without excuse. Well, if you turn the page to Romans 2.12, you'll read these words. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew and you have grown up with the Torah, or if you're a Gentile and you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, we're all under God's wrath as rebels. 
But maybe you ask, maybe there's that one person, that one man or woman who never sinned, the one righteous man or woman on the planet in some remote corner somewhere. Maybe your grandfather, he was just a righteous man. Well, if you turn the page again to Romans 3, verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul says, as it is written. Scripture's not silent about this. All mankind is condemned. And yet, we're plucked out of this abyssal valley when we turn the corner in Romans chapter 3 and we move from the despair of universal condemnation to the confounding joy of justification. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We learn in this, in the preceding chapter that Abraham simply believed God apart from law. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. He was gifted the righteousness. It was an outside alien righteousness as he, given this by God, his right standing was now imputed to him because of his faith, but not just Abraham. In fact, when we turn the page and go to chapter 4, verse 22, we read these words. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So all who believe are also gifted, like Abraham, this alien righteousness imputed to their account by faith. When we trust Christ, our risen Lord, we have been justified. We're made right with the Father. And this justification produces some powerful changes. Look at the first verses of chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, previously we were at enmity with God, but now we have peace. Previously we were barred from access, but now by faith we're partakers of grace. We who had no hope before we were justified can now rejoice in hope, the hope of the glory of God. And though all are condemned in Adam, Paul goes on to say that all those who are in the second Adam, the last Adam, the true and greater Adam, Jesus Christ, will be justified. And as glorious as this doctrine, the doctrine of justification is, we're not even halfway up the mountain. We, we haven't ascended all the way up. We're not even halfway up the hill. There's more. We move from justification to sanctification as we open Romans 6. And looking at verse 3, we learn that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
So we've been united, joined with Jesus in both his death and in his resurrection. And because we are born again from above, we now have the Holy Spirit of God who empowers us to live a victorious, resurrected life in Christ. We have been justified, past tense, and we are being sanctified, present tense. And then in verse 14 of chapter 6, we learn that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin no longer has power. In fact, in chapter 7, as we turn the page, we see the place that the law has in the life of the believer. Verse 6 says, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Though the law is good and it is beneficial, we aren't bound by the law to justify us. We're set free to walk in obedience and in step with the Spirit who has written the law of God in our heart. And the Holy Spirit is constantly sanctifying us. Sometimes we are hoping faster than other times. And the Spirit is renewing us as we walk in the power of the gospel. And thus, as we turn to Romans 8.1, we learn there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. As as magnificent as sanctification is, we still aren't even halfway up the tree line of this majestic mountain. We move from the wondrous present work of the Spirit in our sanctification to his future work in our glorification. Look at verse 29 and 30. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 30, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God writes our salvation history as if it is already accomplished. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. One day our present sufferings will not compare to the glory which will be revealed in us. And in the meantime, though we groan with creation, we can strengthen our hearts with the truth that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 37. Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I'm sure neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Yes, even that thing you're thinking of today. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. And it's now that we come to the snow-capped peaks of this gospel mount as we open Romans 9, 10, and 11 And blanketing the doctrine of glorification is the glorious doctrine of election. We turn to 9-11 and we read these words. God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. What a glorious message that God doesn't qualify us because of our merit or our worth, but because of his own merit and worth. And we see God's merciful purposes in 9, 16, and 18, where Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy, so then he who has mercy, or then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And see, even in the midst of God's sovereign choice, the elect still must hear the gospel and believe and call on his name. We turn the page to Romans chapter 10, and we learn in verses 12 and 13, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God calls, preachers preach, the elect hear, the elect believe, the elect call on the name of the Lord. Though they don't deserve his mercy because they've been sinfully disobedient. And yet all of it comes home for both Gentile and Jew in Romans chapter 11, verses 30 and 32, which we looked at last week, where Paul says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. God's plan includes the fullness of the Gentiles and all who would believe in Israel, though each and every Christ follower, all of us, have been disobedient previously because of his sovereign choice, we have now received his abundant mercy. So here we stand on this glorious summit, and it's a view which surpasses any other vantage point under the sun. We stand this morning on this Mount Everest, so to speak, of the gospel of God. And we see, we have seen condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification, and election. And what should our response be? Well, as John Stott exclaims, analysis gives way to adoration. Our response can and should be nothing less than absolute awe, unbridled worship, and unswerving surrender. This morning, as we conclude chapter 11, we are going to look at Paul's response to the gospel of God. And we're going to look at three ideas. That was just the intro. So here are the three ideas we're going to look at if you're taking notes this morning. We're going to see the wealth and the wisdom of God in verses 33 through 35, the worth of God in the first half of verse 36, and the worship of God in the second half of verse 36. And let's remember, the text before us is a benediction. What's that? It's an expression of praise to God for his glorious goodness. So church, may we tread on this elevated, hallowed ground very carefully, reverently together this morning. Paul speaks first of the wealth and the wisdom of God in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And thankfully, in your English Bibles, there's an exclamation point. You feel it, don't you? You feel that exclamation in Paul's statement. Well, notice with me that Paul magnifies the depth of three things. He first magnifies the depth of the riches of God. Throughout Scripture, we find that God bestows riches, riches of kindness, riches of patience, riches of glory, riches of mercy, but don't for a minute, don't for a hot minute think that this means literal wealth as much as Kenneth Copeland would like you to name them and claim them and send him a $100 faith gift to sow your seed. That's not what we mean when we read riches in the scripture. This is primarily referring to salvation being given to those who repent and believe, meaning that we are enriched by our covenant-keeping gracious Savior. 
God's riches are given indiscriminately and God's riches are given inexhaustibly. I love that. We don't have to appropriately qualify to receive the riches of God. They are infinitely deep. They are incalculably sufficient and they're graciously included for all who trust Christ by faith. His riches are deep. Well, secondly, Paul says that he just exclaims the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I said there's three, but a lot of scholars put these two, wisdom and knowledge, together. They pair these words together. One scholar defined God's wisdom as this, the divine efficiency evident in all of God's works. I like that. So then God's knowledge can thus be defined as his insight into the very essence of people and things and ideas. Or you could just say his omniscience, his all-knowingness. You see how his wisdom and his knowledge go together. God is wise in his ways regarding Israel, regarding the nations, devising a plan that includes national Israel, rejecting her Messiah, grafting in the wild olive shoots, the Gentiles. But even in this, God is still at work provoking jealousy in the Jews, who, as we learned last week, many believe and interpret that a large representation of the Jews will come to faith and will be grafted back in. So God's wisdom in his understanding and his ways, coupled with his knowledge, uh, Paul says these are inexhaustibly deep and they're certainly not something that we can just quickly understand on day one of a theology proper class. You sit in theology class on day one, like, I think I've got God's wisdom and his knowledge and his riches figured out. I, I've, I buttoned it up. I'm good. I don't need to learn anymore. No. Notice what Paul goes on to say. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Now, I want you to make a clear, clear note in your notes that what Paul's doing here is he's making a dividing line. So if you're taking notes, I'd, lo I'd love for you to draw a right creator on one line with a line and then maybe way lower creation. Paul's making a dividing line between creator and creation specifically in regards to the divine plan of salvation. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Anyone have your thesaurus app queued up for that one? Yeah, I have some friends who use big words and I just nod my head when they say those big words and then later I quickly go and I Google the word and I look up what the meaning was, and then I come back, but I overdo it because I come back and start using the word that I've never heard of way too much, and I usually use it wrong. Well, what does inscrutable mean? The word simply means mysterious, difficult, enigmatic. So God's ways, particularly regarding salvation, are unsearchable. They're just simply above our pay grade. And his judgments, meaning his sovereign decree, decisions, disposals, unlike me looking up the meaning of a word, they're unsearchable. It's not something we can Google. We can't fully understand God's ways by consulting a textbook, but we must open our Bibles. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable or difficult to understand are his ways. And yet, Ephesians 1, we hear over and over how God is working all things according to the purpose and counsel of his will. He doesn't need the counsel of man. He doesn't need someone's counsel. He doesn't need to turn to someone and say, what are your thoughts on this? I need some help here. In fact, Lloyd-Jones says that he thought with himself, he deliberated and mediated with himself. 
The whole plan of salvation from beginning to end is exclusively of God with nothing at all from the outside. Everything originates in God and everything comes out from God. So, so we can't search or understand his way, certainly not in our own limited, finite human brains, but we can open the scripture and see this mysterious, enigmatic knowledge and way that God works. And yet, that's exactly what Paul does. Paul says, don't listen to my logic. He backs up what he's saying by quoting Isaiah and Job to prove his point. Notice verses 34, which is a quote of Isaiah, and 35, a quote of Job. First, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? If you're taking note, that's Isaiah 40, verse 13. Isaiah 40 is a powerful verse. Uh, Isaiah, in many ways, turns the corner. A lot of people believe uh, 1 through 39 is one kind of way that God is speaking to Israel. And then starting in 40 to the end of Isaiah is uh, much more hope, much more of the new covenant. But in Isaiah 40, in context, Isaiah is marveling at God's promise to bring Israel back up from their Babylonian captivity one day. And Isaiah admonishes Israel, behold your God. He's the shepherd. He's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't need an extra shot of caffeine in the morning. And then remember these verses that young men will. They will faint. They will fall short. And those who wait for the Lord, wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. You've got the Thomas Kincaid painting in your living room. I know you guys know this verse. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. That's the context. What he's saying is, as he quotes Isaiah, is Isaiah saying, Israel, see God as God. God can't be compared with man. He can't be compared with finite creatures. God is not in need of human counselors. He doesn't turn to man, woman, or child seeking advice. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. In fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, his ways are higher than ours, Isaiah 55. And so he says... Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? And the implied answer is no one. Well, note the second quote, verse 35, or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid. This is a quote from Job 41.11. And this is God's second address to Job, where he challenges Job to consider an animal, a beast called Leviathan. And no, please don't at me. Please don't try to tell me what you think Leviathan. Well, maybe go for it later. Tell me what you think Leviathan is. But to Job, Leviathan was the most feared creature in all the earth. And so God's question to Job is this. Hey, Job, is there any creature, great or small, who can claim that God owes him anything? And what would the answer be? The answer would be what, church? No. God will be indebted to no one, no matter how powerful or great they are. I've got some great news for you this morning. You and I, we are finite, sin-racked beings. We are created beings. We are not infinite, whereas God stands as uncreated, infinite, and holy, and his ways and his judgments and will are beyond understanding. God does not need anyone's counsel. He owes no one any explanation regarding his sovereign plan and our salvation. His wealth and his wisdom are deep, and they're incomprehensible to any man. And I believe that's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that we will spend eternity where he's disclosing 
the gospel to us and like unraveling his plan. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take all of eternity to really truly uh, move from this mirror that we see dimly in to then see more clearly. Well, let's move on to verse 36. And our second and third points are, are found in this verse. And in case you're taking note, the first half of this is theology and the second half is doxology. So note with me the worth of God. Verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now these are three vitally important prepositional phrases. From him, through him, to him. So if you're taking note, I'd love for you to circle those three. First, God is the source. From him are all things. That's the where. Where did all things come from? The answer is God. From him are all things. Secondly, God is the sustainer. Through him are all things. That's the how. How did all things come into existence? The answer, again, is God. Through him. And then God is the summary. To him are all things. That that is the why. Why did all things come into existence? Again, because God. He's the source, the sustainer, the summary. God's the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of all things. Paul's speaking about salvation here, but we can broaden this to all things. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If you know your Greek, the alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the omega is the last. So if we were to say this in the English alphabet, you, Jesus would say, I am the A, and the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the origin. I'm the outcome. I'm the source, the means, and the reason that all things exist. See, church, God is not a means to an end. He is the means and the end. And verse 36 reveals a, reveals a God who is in a class by himself. The Latin phrase for that is sui generis. He's in a class by himself. That means you and I, we don't exist by accident or for our own purposes. Neither does the rest of the universe. Everything in creation is subjected to the supremacy of God. You can jot down Colossians 1, 16 through 18 to see how Jesus is preeminent. God is supreme. God's in a category by himself. God says something groundbreaking and revolutionary to Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, read these words. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says, I am God, there is no other. There's none like me. Can there be a more accurate definition of the holiness of God? See, the Hebrew word for holy is kadash, and it primarily means to cut off, to separate, to be in a class of your own. And often when we think of holy, we think of being morally pure, and to be sure, that's included. But primarily, holiness means to be distinct, to be set apart. Something regarded as holy is something which has been devoted to God or has been set apart or is distinct. So God's holiness is not just a facet of who he is or just some deed that he accomplishes. No, holiness is the very essence of who he is. And so when we read these words, for from him and through him and to him are all things, that means God is completely separate from creation. He is holy. 
Pastor Micah, earlier, uh, we walked through Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, the prophet sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the angels are saying, they're declaring over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But why did they go on to say the earth is filled with, you'd expect them to say, his holiness. But instead they say the earth is filled with his glory. How is God's holiness related to God's glory? Well, let's look at our third section, the worship of God. Remember I told you the first half of verse 36 is theology. The second half is doxology. And church doxology praise always flows from theology. Okay, in other words, the first half theology produces the second half doxology. And friends, our doxology, our praise, our worship can never rise above the level of our theology. So notice Paul's conclusion of the matter. It's simply this, to him be glory forever. Amen. From God are all things. Through God are all things. To him are all things. Everything has its authorship, agency, and aim in God. Therefore, the conclusion that we must make is that God is the one who receives the glory forever. I can't give myself glory for saving myself. No, it was all of God. It was, it was from him, through him, and it was to him. So he gets the glory in my salvation. But let's be honest, he gets the glory in everything. He gets the glory in that breath I just took, in every breath that I've taken. But how does this holiness relate to his glory? I like what John Piper says. He says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It's the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. See, glory is what we give weight or substance to. And as we behold God's greatness, we can, like the reformers say, sole dea gloria, to God alone be the glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states man's chief end is what? Do you know it? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what our life is, is lived for. Not just the sacred, but also what we would consider the secular. All of our life is to be lived for the glory of God. So he says, to him be glory forever. And all of God's people throughout time have said, amen. We've said amen with our lives, not just our lips, that we are living our life for his glory. And church, that's why Romans chapter 12, verse one, makes so much sense in light of these truths, in light of the mercies of our salvation, in light of his infinite wealth, wisdom, and worth. Look what Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, which we'll study next week, verse one. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We owe to God all the glory in our salvation. Yes, you may have prayed and trusted Christ and you got baptized and you joined the church and you're doing good in your community, but none of us can give ourselves glory for our salvation, sanctification, and good works. No, we give, the, we give God the glory due his name. We lift up our hands, our hearts, our very bodies. We lay them on the altar of sacrifice. We're separated from this world, as we'll learn next week. We're devoted to God. Our surrender is holy and acceptable 
to God. And so in light of God's mercies, which we've studied throughout the book of Romans, the only acceptable response this morning is absolute surrender and a devotion that's willing to die to self and be alive to God. As we apply this majestic text, I have four points of application for us, and we want to welcome our new members here shortly, so I'm going to speed this up a little bit. Now, in light of God's mercies on this glorious peak of the gospel, number one, may the supremacy of God deepen our affections for Christ. Like Paul, if I'm submitted to the supremacy of God, then what I believe about God fuels my adoration for God. So in a sense, my theology becomes poetry. Does that make sense? My doctrine inspires devotion. The precepts that I know and cherish here motivate praise in my heart and lips. So Paul breaks out in rapturous applause for God's goodness. And church, when's the last time you were stirred in your spirit concerning who God is? May these not be empty principles that you study to pass a test. No, may you understand these as the qualities of the person and the nature of our triune God. So may the supremacy of God deepen our affections for Christ. Number two, may the supremacy of God disrupt the ordinary and the mundane. You see, like Bach, nothing is truly ordinary or common if we can write to God be the glory on it. Maybe it's on your research paper as a student. Maybe it's in your commute. Well, (laughs) that's a little more tough. Maybe it's 30 minutes into that corporate board meeting or on that road trip, or as you go to make a simple purchase. See, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So moms, you who are raising your kids at home and you're tempted to look at your status as unimportant, you must realize you're raising your children and keeping your home organized for the glory of God. Luther spoke of that, that that there's more glory in that, giving glory to God than in the Pope's and the monks and the nuns. The employee who's working from home and does data entry, you might be tempted to incorrectly think, well, this isn't ministry work, so it's not giving God glory. No, your precision, your attention to detail, your excellence, your attitude, your timeliness, your mindfulness, your cooperation with others, your willingness to get the work done, bringing order in a fallen world that's in chaos back into order. Those are not secular endeavors completely because over above it all, to God be the glory forever. So every minute of every hour of every day, I can offer my life back to God in submission to him and give him the praise that he deserves. From him, through him, to him are all things. Well, thirdly, may the supremacy of God detach us from lesser glories, including self-glory. We live in a culture where everyone lives their entire life to gain glory through money, fame, or achievement. And these Though we give weight and substance to them, they don't compare to the greatness of God. It might be the weekend, it might be the payday, it might be the glory of your childhood or those sports and the letter that you got in high school, and I could have taken state if I just had that one guy catch the ball, whatever your past glories have been. These are lesser glories, self-glory. And the, see, the supremacy of God detaches us from these because we learn we can't be God's counselor. His ways are higher than our ways. He alone is perfect. We are not. So let your perfectionism die at the cross. He is immortal. We are not. So let your fear of death and your desire to stay young, let that die at the cross. He's of infinite worth. And you are not. You're finite. You're fallen. You're corruptible. So let you find worth in your days to give him the praise he deserves. 
Whenever we fall short of the glory of God, we realize our lives have been laying down at the wrong altar, some rival which competes for the glory he alone deserves. So finally, may the supremacy of God demand our allegiance. You see, we're all worshipers, we're all glory givers to something or someone. And scripture tells us that these idols conflict with our worship of God. These idols try to take the supremacy in our lives. But church, in light of God's mercy, behold our God. He's majestic in holiness. As we conclude the series and we move into a more practical section in Romans, we're going to be titling that starting next week, Shaped by God's Grace. And I encourage you to read ahead Romans chapter 12 and the concluding chapters in Romans. And we're going to see how God's grace shapes us to live in the body of Christ, to live as citizens on earth, and to live as ministers of the gospel as we seek to see the nations be glad and learn of Christ. So I encourage you to read ahead. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to uh, sing, and then we're going to welcome some new members. So bow your heads with me. May this glorious, matchless love, this godlike miracle of grace, teach mortal tongues like those above to raise this song of lofty praise. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would alone receive the glory. In view of these incredible mercies we've seen throughout the book of Romans, Lord, we acknowledge from you, through you, to you are all things, including our lives this morning. Some of us are here, maybe for the first time, hearing of the gospel. Would you draw our hearts to you, that we would behold our God seated on his throne, Lord, that we would be encouraged to come and adore him. We worship you. We seek you and we thank you for all these things that are ours in Christ. To his name be glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.